Well, let's pray and turn our attention to the scripture this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to continue to study your word, to be shaped and to be formed by it. And we ask now that as we consider the nature of your people, the church, carefully, that you would encourage us at our place in it, that we may grow in all of these ways of faithfulness to you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder when you think about leadership, I wonder who are some of the best leaders that you know. Every healthy group of people are given to healthy structures that includes leaders and leadership. This goes from the smallest grouping of humans to the largest. (laughs) Families have leaders. Tribes have leaders. States have leaders. Countries have leaders. You can change the sphere of influence. You can change it to businesses. Businesses that are successful have healthy leaders. Even sports teams have leaders. Leadership is part of the way that we arrange ourselves in healthy functionality as we go about the course of our lives. And so it's not surprising then that when God gathers to himself groups of people that he promotes within that group of people or raises up within those groups of people some to lead them. If you're new here today or if you're visiting with us for the holiday weekend, you are stepping into the middle of a series that we are calling The Gathered People. We've been looking for the last number of weeks of the descriptions that the Bible gives about the nature and the purpose of the church. And we've seen again and again through a variety of descriptions that the church and you being part of a local church is far more important than your experience of that local church in any given day or week or even year. That God is doing eternal things in and through this group of people that he gathers universally. And it's displayed particularly in local congregations like this one that you are a part of. And as such, we've seen how the church can be described as a people with all kinds of descriptors. A a people who have been redeemed, a people who worship, a people who are representative, a people who make up a body. And today we consider how the church, and being part of a church, means necessarily that we are a people who have leaders. In the Old Testament, the people who God raised up as his own, the people of Israel, weren't a people who were simply wandering around the wilderness, moving toward the promised land, with no level of relational or organizational structure. These people were divided into tribes. (laughs) They were divided and given different roles. And the structure of the nation provided for them unity and direction and leadership and authority and efficiency. It allowed the people to follow God in a better fashion than they'd be able to if they were just an unorganized mess. Likewise, in the New Testament... 
we see that God sets up a structure for his people, that he gathers people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jews and Gentiles alike. He creates them into a family with all kinds of different roles and skills and abilities. God's people called the church represent God to the world. They're called to use their gifts for his glory. They're called to pursue holy living and to reject sin in their lives. They're called to function in unity as a body, as the kingdom of God advances on the earth. And to do this, God has provided structure and specific roles and raised up leaders to help lead the people in that task. And so today, we remind ourselves of what God says about the specific role of leaders, namely the role of elder in the local church. And by way of, by way of nuance this morning, when we talk about the role of the elder in the church, we are talking both about laymen who are elders, which we have in our church, and vocational elders, or we call them pastors in our church. The New Testament uses the word elder for both, pastor and layman alike, and as they do not make a distinction in the New Testament, we will not make a distinction as we talk about them this morning. And so grab a Bible with me and open to 1 Peter chapter 5 if you've yet to do so. There are a number of passages we could look at, and we'll touch a couple But we'll spend most of our time this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. It's a short verse, short passage, filled with a couple of verses that are packed full of meaning. And as you turn, let's read it together. In in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is encouraging the people of God, particularly as they've experienced persecution. And he says to them in chapter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, But being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so it's interesting that in the middle of this letter to Christians who are spread throughout the known world at that time, Peter makes it a point to address the elders directly, but he addresses them in such a fashion that everybody gets to hear it. He encourages them. And by encouraging them, he encourages the church at large. And the first thing that we recognize about this description of of leaders and elders, is that these shepherds are not like worldly leaders. Over the years, I've read probably dozens of leadership books, and I know that many of you have as well. And you know, if you've read those books, there are 
just hundreds of inspiring quotes about leaders and leadership that, that we could list. Hundreds of them. For example, I think of the words of John Quincy Adams, one of our early presidents, says, if your actions inspire others to dream more, to learn more, to become more, and to do more, you are a leader. And you read a quote like that, and you say, I want myself to dream more, learn more, do more, inspire more. And I want to help others to do the same. I want to be a leader. And we could list many more quotes like this. But it's interesting to me that as we look through the Bible for such descriptions of the leader, we see that the elders of a church aren't described by the same type of catalytic leadership that we see in many of our bestsellers. Their leadership certainly has some catalytic elements to it, but this role is a little bit different. The first thing that he says to these elders by way of command is verse 2, is that they are to shepherd the flock of God. The metaphor of shepherd and sheep is one that's woven throughout the whole Bible, isn't it? We see God referred to as the shepherd and God's people referred to as the sheep. And so King David writes in the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We see that Jesus is referred to as the shepherd. And he alludes to a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one who is astray. And to bring him back into the fold, into the family of God. And now we see here in this text that Jesus is not just referred to as a shepherd, but as referred to as the chief shepherd. And by implications, the elders who Peter is addressing are the under-shepherds. And they're given this command to shepherd the flock of God. To be a shepherd isn't a role in the ancient world that you aspired to. <laughs> Teenage boys were given the role of shepherd because the real men went off to do other things. But here, he elevates the role and points to the great importance of this type of leadership. And this isn't the type of leadership that you would see Fortune 500 companies espouse. It's not the type of leadership that will get you a write-up in the Wall Street Journal or the Harvard Business Review. But this type of leadership is the leadership that God raises up for his most valuable possession, the church. He says, similarly, in Acts chapter 20... Describing the role of the elder, he's, Paul at that point is addressing the elders of the church of Ephesus and he's saying his goodbye to them. And he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So you think about that for a minute. You notice the end of that description. That God raises up people to be overseers for those that he obtained with his own blood. The role is serious. Because the price of the people 
that God sacrificed his son to gather people to himself so that their sins would be forgiven, that they would be called his own, that they would be moved from a people who were far off to a people who were close, that they'd be a people who were destined for death to a people who are given new life, a people who once were not a people, it says, but now have become God's people, and he bought them with his blood. That's the nature of the gospel, that Jesus buys us back to God by forgiving our sins, and the price, of course, is his own life, as perfect as it was. And God raises up shepherds to care for this flock. And so that begs the question, well, what does a shepherd do? Well, we see here and in other scripture texts what a shepherd does, and perhaps the most obvious is that a shepherd smells like the sheep. (laughs) The analogy is fitting, isn't it? Shepherds are with the sheep. They smell like the sheep. They go where the sheep go, or in a more healthy fashion, the sheep go where they go. They're not distant. They're not separated or far off. They are right there with the flock. And so two elders, elders in a church who are distant or uninvolved or simply meeting men who function in a boardroom aren't fulfilling the most basic part of the role. Elders must be with people. Pastors must be with people. It's secondly pretty apparent to us that the shepherd exercises oversight. He says that right in verse 2, he commands them, shepherd the flock of God, and the description of shepherding is exercising oversight in a certain type of way. And so to oversee something means that you watch over it. It means that you direct it. It means that you care for it. It means that you protect it. And it means that you're accountable for it. And just as a shepherd leads his sheep to pasture for grazing and leads his sheep to water for drinking, so too the leaders of a church, the elders and pastors, direct a church toward nourishment. And the nourishment that they find, food and water, is found in God's word, resting in the truth of the gospel. As we grow to be the type of people that God has called us to be. The elder also protects the sheep from harm, even in a manner that is self-sacrificial at times. Oswald Sanders once said, no one need to aspire to leadership in the work of God who is not willing to pay a price greater than his contemporaries and colleagues are willing to pay. True leadership always exacts a heavy toll on the whole man. And the more effective the leadership is, the higher the price to be paid. And so what does it mean that an elder protects the flock? I mean, in one sense, it's apparent that we continue to teach a certain direction of faithfulness and godliness that's found in the scriptures. But there's also something that we teach against. 
Acts 20, again, chapter 29 and 30, Paul is with the Ephesian elders. He's saying his goodbyes. The church has been established in Ephesus. He's encouraging them and who they are to be and who are they, they are to become for the sake of the local congregation. And then he warns them. He says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the role of the elder is to help people understand what to believe about God, teaching them what the Bible says. The role of the elder is also to help them to understand what not to believe about God. Teaching them or showing them what false teaching looks like. Now you might not think to yourself that that seems like that big of a deal. But I'll tell you what. Our day is ripe with false teachers. You need just turn on the television or look at another article on the internet and you will see teachers, men and women alike, who sound just enough to be true that they're believable <laughs> while at the same time hijacking the very gospel that they seek to promote. Some of them willingly and knowingly. Others unknowingly with the best of attention, intentions. I think of a pastor named Ben Patterson who said something a number of years ago that has shown to be true. The pastor noticed that after retiring some years that his former congregation was sliding away from orthodoxy. And he saw this as his fault noting the one thing that he thought he did most poorly as a pastor. The pastor stated in two sentences his greatest failure, which was this. I always told the people what to believe. My great mistake is that I never clearly taught my people what not to believe. Now we live in a time where a tolerant society doesn't tolerate calling out the bad guys very well. We're a society in which I were to stand up on a Sunday morning and name names of false teachers, some of you would bristle and say, we want to be defined by what we're for, not what we're against. And I totally agree that we need to be defined by what we're for. But I tell you, one look at the changing landscape of the church in America and you would say, that we have not done a good enough job of protecting the flock from the wolves. God raises up elders to lead his people toward faithfulness. These elders are supposed to exercise their authority in a certain type of way. And so what is the disposition of an elder? What is the disposition of a Christian leader at large? He moves in verses 2, 3, and 4 
into a description of the motives of a person. Not necessarily just the external observation, but what motivates a person to serve the Lord in this capacity. And he lists three common struggles in this motivation. Struggle number one is laziness. Struggle number two is greed. And struggle number three is the desire for control. Let's look at them briefly. Struggle number one, laziness. He says that the manner in which an elder is supposed to lead is exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Self-evident in some ways. Nobody wants to follow a leader who only begrudgingly leads. But some churches, and I've, I've been in churches, I've seen churches, have a culture where they don't understand the significance of what the church is or what the roles within the church are. And so they don't have people who want the weight and the responsibility of being an elder. Some men in the church, consequently, will then just periodically take their turn as an elder of the church. Well, you did it for the last three or four years. I guess it's my turn now. I'll do it for another three, and then we'll find Joe, and he can do it for a while. That type of apathy is completely antithetical to the greatness of the task. God is entrusting under-shepherds with the people that he calls his very bride. You wouldn't put your daughter into the care or your wife into the care of a person who is only going to apathetically care for her because nobody else will do it. In other situations, we've seen pastors that are so worn down by the ministry that they spend almost all of their time and affections on their hobbies or entertainment. Pastors who don't work on their teaching or their preparation, they try to avoid people rather than seek to engage people. Lay elders who want to make decisions, but without the hard work of being with the people and shepherding the flock. Elders and pastors together who avoid the hard leadership decisions, but when they arise, uh, they are nowhere to be found. Those are the descriptions of someone who is under compulsion, but not leading willingly. But to serve God willingly, that is someone who breathes and eats and sleeps the lifeblood of God's church. Those are the people who look at all of you with great emotion and joy and struggle and desire and optimism because they know where God has taken you and where God wants to take you. Over the years, we've interviewed a number of pastors for different ministry positions, and you can always tell. You can always tell the ones who are serving willingly. Their tone is one of enthusiasm and excitement and purpose. They long to be used by God for the sake of his flock. For our lay elders, we have elder training for the, for the men that will come on and serve in this capacity. 
And after the men are trained, uh, I have a chance to sit down with them individual and we talk through kind of some of the different dynamics to know what they're thinking and know what they're feeling. And I always say to them, at some point in the conversation, the same thing. I ask them what it is that they spend most of their time on out of uh, or beyond their job and their commitments to their family. Whatever that is that you spend most of your time on, outside of your job and your family, whether that's golf or woodworking or weekends on the boat or whatever it might be that somebody spends their time on. And we always say that that thing will be replaced by shepherding people when you become an elder. It becomes the number one thing for those men. And you know what? The vast majority of time, we don't even need to say it. Because the ones that God are raising up to shepherd the flock are already engaged with people. (laughs) They're already sacrificing their hobbies. They're already saying, this is more important than that. Because we don't really promote people to the position of elder. We recognize those who are eldering among us. So not under compulsion, but willingly. The second motivation that we see here, struggle for motivation, is the motivation for greed. And so he says that the elder is to exercise oversight, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. We don't pay our lay elders at Old North Church. We pay our vocational elders or our pastors. And so this is primarily directed to them for all of us to hear. Shameful gain is another way to say that you look at your role in the ministry as a way, first and foremost, to make money. (laughs) Secondly, to serve the Lord and his people. Now, if you go into the ministry to make money, you're pretty stupid. And maybe you're not smart enough to be a pastor anyway. But yet there has been some who have succeeded. And shameful gain is obvious in one sense to all of us and maybe a little bit more subtle in other ways. The obvious ones for shameful gain are the easy pickings of the prosperity preachers on TV, right? Seems like every two years or so, we see another national news story of one of them who is raising money for their private jet. And last month, we saw another one. Jesse Duplantis is a TV preacher from Louisiana who's currently raising funds for a new Falcon 7X, which is a luxury jet that travels at high speeds and has a high fuel capacity, so it travels for a long range. He says that God told him that his faith had become stagnant by having his current private jet, which is a Falcon 50. And so he's seeking to raise $54 million for a new one because if Jesus were here today, he would most definitely not be riding a donkey. He would be riding a jet to to share the gospel more efficiently. And effectively. Shameful 
gain. We don't even need to describe why. It's so obvious to us. But I think more subtly, for those who serve the Lord in leadership, particularly in our time, in the celebrity culture like we are in, in the West, there are a lot of pastors who desire to make a name for themselves nationally, to have their article published, to write the bestseller book, to get onto the speaking circuit. And yes, there is a speaking circuit for pastors. And that becomes a motivation for them, or even the primary motivation for them. And as we talk to Uh, younger men who are entering into the ministry, that is one of the first things that we have to try to peel back again and again and again because the example that has gone before them is misconstrued into that type of motivation. And that motivation, instead of the motivation to focus on the people that God has placed in front of them, and if the Lord expands influence, then he does, and if he doesn't, that's okay, But to focus on the people that God has placed in front of them, that is the willing part. (laughs) Not under compulsion, not for personal gain, but willingly and eagerly. The third temptation that we see here, the term struggle for motivation, is found in the struggle for control. And so he says in Verse 3, that the elder exercises oversight, not domineering over those who are in charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter makes it clear that domineering behavior or leadership that we might say is exceptionally harsh, directive leadership that leverages position and authority wrongly. This is not the motivation of an elder. When somebody says, I want to be the decision maker... That's usually a red flag. Instead, Peter makes the most basic leadership observation. That people respond to influence rather than leveraging position. Many of you know, particularly from this area, the steel tycoon and generous philanthropist Andrew Carnegie. Who summed it up very well when he said, the older I get, I pay less attention to what men say. I just watch what they do. So the elder doesn't domineer, but he leads by example. And look at the motivation, verse 4. We had motivation in the Acts passage that the motivation was these were the people that God bought (laughs) for himself. And verse 4 gives us a second motivation. It points to the chief shepherd returning. He says that when the chief shepherd returns you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The recognition for serving God on earth might be minimal. The recognition for leading a congregation, even in Peter's case, where they are suffering persecution, that recognition is not the type of recognition that we want. The sacrifice might indeed be great, but the reward for serving God and his people is eternal. And so God raises up Elders to lead his people in faithfulness. And it's all part of being this gathered people together. We conclude by looking at simply how do we then follow our leaders? 
If all organizations have healthy leadership, from the smallest to the largest, whether it's your family or the United States government, or God instills a certain type of leadership within a local church, how do we follow our leaders? This is an interesting one for us because in our time, many of us are very suspect to anyone who's in authority over us. We live, in a lot of ways, in a very anti-authoritarian society, particularly for people 40 and younger. But we see in the New Testament that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos, that part of this order is the establishment of someone called to exercise leadership and authority. And even despite that, we've had bad examples, haven't we? We could probably all point to a bad example of Christian leadership that we've seen or known or experienced. And it only then prompts in us even further that bristling against the idea of having leaders who exercise authority. I think of the story of Bishop Potter. Bishop Potter was sailing for Europe on one of the great transatlantic ocean liners. And when he went aboard, he found that another passenger was to share the cabin with him. And after going down to see the accommodations, he came up to the purser's desk and he inquired if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily he would never avail himself of such a privilege, but he had been to his cabin and he had met the man who was to occupy the other berth. And judging from his appearance, he was afraid that he might not be a very trustworthy person. And the purser paused and he accepted responsibility for the valuables and he remarked, it's okay, Bishop. I'll be very glad to take care of these things for you. In fact, the other man has been up here and left his for the same reason. We've seen examples of poor Christian leadership, and it causes us to bristle at the idea of having leaders over us. Because in business, you get paid to submit to your leaders. In society, you go to jail if you don't submit to the authority that is above you. But what about in a church? Authority in a church is something that we willingly submit ourselves to. Because through our submission to that authority, we're submitting ourselves to God himself. And it is for our long-standing good. And so he says in verse 5, look at it with me. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we look at our leaders and we look to them and to the rest of the congregation at large and we say, our mode of operating is the mode of humility. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 5, another way that we look at our leaders is through the lens of double honor. It says in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so the double honor that's referred to there for the elders of the local congregation is a combination of respect, and in that passage particularly, it's for those that we would call vocational pastors, for the 
for the vocational elders or pastors among us that we provide for them generously. Thirdly, we see another way that we follow our elders, and that's in Hebrews 13.7. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So if the one the ones that God raises up in the local church to care for his blood-bought people, (laughs) the ones that will answer to the chief shepherd as under-shepherds on the day of his return, the ones who keep watch over your souls, if those ones are the elders, then we follow them joyfully, and we make their job easier in doing so. (laughs) God raises up elders to lead his people toward faithfulness. And so we come to the end and we we think to ourselves, well, that, you know, that's in some ways um, not the most compelling topic of conversation for a sermon on Sunday. And yet at the very same time, if we get that part wrong, as we describe the gathered people, you've heard the analogies, and I think they're true in a lot of ways, or the old sayings, as the leaders go, so goes the church. As the leaders go, so go the people. Because in a leadership vacuum, somebody will always step up to lead. (laughs) That is the nature of leadership. And healthy leadership leads a healthy church. And healthy following help to enable healthy leaders. And so we pray. We pray that God would raise up among us more healthy leaders. Maybe some of you aspire to leadership roles in the church, and you can see here what some of the role is. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, some of the qualifications for the roles of elders and pastors and on down the line. And we ask that God would help the leaders who he has raised up already among us because we know that as they go, we go too. And we recognize with thankfulness that God creates order and structure in such a way that this gathered people would flourish as they grow in faithfulness to him. Let's thank God right now, shall we, as we pray together and as we sing one more song. Father, we thank you for raising up men in our midst who love you and who love your people. We pray, Father, that you would empower our pastors and our elders to works of service, that you would encourage them in a role that is sometimes discouraging, that you would encourage their families in a role that contains great sacrifice, that you would raise up more shepherds among us because this flock is large and we have many needs among us. Help us to be on guard against false teaching. Help us to promote the things of your word. And God, as, as this flock grows in nourishment and faithfulness to you, we pray that you would be preparing us all the more for the day that the chief shepherd himself returns. We pray, thanking the Lord Jesus. Amen.